Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 146, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Let us do so now by remaining standing and singing together hymn number 147. Excuse me. I looked at Psalm 147. I got confused. That happens sometimes. All right. uh, Please be seated. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the gift of worship once again. Uh, more and more, as we will see in the book of Hebrews, the great, the great theme to which uh, it is driving in our approach to God in the Holy of Holies, uh, in the heavenly tabernacle, is worship. Worship was always the great theme and the great concern. Uh, of course, as you gave to Adam, there is a culture for us to build. Uh, there is a world for us to inhabit and to multiply and to fill and to subdue. But even for him, the great, the great thing was worship and communion with God. And uh, to us, O oh Lord, along those lines, we see the greatest blessings which can co- possibly f- be found or come to us in this life, in this place. Uh, ordinary uh, aspects in a worldly sense, outwardly contemptible, weak, uh, yet possessing and conveying to us spiritual life and power. The one who has faith is surely able to see this. 
more and more as we who are spiritual persons with spiritual discernment, we derive true spiritual benefit from spiritual means. And so we ask you that through the prayers of the saints and through the singing and the fellowship, songs, spiritual songs and hymns, uh, the Lord's Supper, the reading and the preaching of the word, all that we do together uh, in this conversation we have for you, uh, with you, you speaking to us, us responding to you and on and on we go throughout the worship service that we might derive true comfort, true blessing and that you might communicate real spiritual life to your people. Uh, Lord, we recognize that we are not dead, we are not devoid of spiritual life, we who are Christian people and disciples of Jesus Christ Uh, But at times that spiritual life is indeed waning and uh, in need of some reviving. And if not speaking of ourselves, though, let us be honest, we are. uh, Let us at least speak of the church in general and of our nation. There is a real need of a reviving of the church, uh, of a disentangling of the church, of her worldliness and her sinfulness. God, uh, we ask you that the church would stop listening to the world. We ask you that the church would stop taking her directives and her uh, and her agenda from what the world says is the pressing need and the pressing crisis. We have a message in the Bible that is far greater than anything that the world ever thinks is great, uh, namely the message of salvation, that men are sick and dying inwardly in their souls and that the only hope they have of finding salvation is in the person Jesus Christ who came into the world as our Savior. Jesus Christ, to you be all praise, glory, and honor. You are the Savior of men, and you alone are the Savior of men. As we will see again in the sermon, as we've been seeing, such salvation could not be found under the Old Testament priesthood. And and in reality, if we think of it, that was the best chance man ever had, as far as his own uh, achievements. But no, salvation could not be found there. It can only be found in him. And that is always our message, always. Even as nations uh, are in turmoil, as political systems are in question, as, as uh, Lord, uh, it's difficult to even say what's happening in the world, uh, but it, most of it isn't good. Uh, but we can hardly understand it or describe it to you. All that we know is that we need to find refuge in this place, and we certainly don't want to bring the world in with us. The whole point of coming in here is to get away from it all, is to find refuge in the sanctuary, and to hide even from uh, the hostility and the confusion and the deceit and the sin of the world. And so, gracious Father, we ask you that as we hide in the refuge of your wing or or, uh, in the strong tower of your name, that you might indeed give refuge and comfort to your people, that you might strengthen our faith, and that we might go out from this uh, this place with a faith which is triumphant and which overcomes the world, one which does not give in to doubt or fear or which uh, so easily succumbs at the smallest presence of temptation, or trial. But may we go from faith to faith, as Paul says, ever conquering, ever glorying in our salvation. And so, Father, as we consider and contemplate the Christian life, uh, we seek to do so in the same way the New Testament does. And we ask you that you would give us one which is comprehensive and one which is glorious and one which is triumphing. Not as though we pretend we can conquer the world uh, as a Christian endeavor through military might, but with the weapons of the warfare you've given us, namely spiritual ones, we know that the battle we are waging is a winning one and will bring us victoriously into heaven, full of faith. And so, Father, again, as we seek to enter in by faith, as the high priest of old did in a much feebler way and through an earthly means, so we, through a spiritual and heavenly way, 
seek to draw near and ask you that you might accept our worship and that you might be pleased with all that we offer and that you might encourage and, again, strengthen uh, the faith in the hands of your church. Then as we close our prayer, we remember those words you taught us to say. Now saying together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let me ask someone to uh, switch the uh, the heating system over to cool. <laughs> uh, we had to, it was 62 when we got here. We had to turn the heat on, but I can feel the heat rising in the room, and I don't know if I'll make it through the surface if we don't have some cool air in here. Uh, the scripture reading is from Psalm 40, which is quoted in our text. Uh, verse 6 is quoted in our text, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, you will find verse 6 of Psalm 40 being quoted. And we'll look at that in the sermon. But let's just look at Psalm 40 in its entirety. For the choir director, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done. And your thoughts toward us, there is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count sacrifice. Here's the quote and meal offering you have not desired. My ears have uh, you have opened burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Behold, or then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. So, Lord, you know, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head and my heart has failed me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Let us stand together and sing the doxology.
seated. And now, uh, as our Psalter selection number 40, page 637. of your hymnal, a favorite psalm of mine. I preached it recently in the evening. As I said uh, earlier in the year, it was the psalm that was on my mind constantly. You'll see why if you don't know it already. Psalm 84, the loveliness of the places of God's worship. Uh, And so read along with me in the bold. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth. For the courts of the Lord, my heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee in whose heart are the ways of them. Who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold, O God, our shield and look upon the face of thine anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will be withheld from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. And let us stand together now and sing. Uh, Let's see, hymn 173.
Please be seated. Turn with me, please, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Listen to the word of God for the law, since it is it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins. You've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the reading of your word. We ask you that uh, by its unique power, we might together uh, be sanctified, even as we read here, that uh, by your will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Well, we don't seek to add to that sanctification, but we do seek to experience it. Uh, more and more as as a reality uh, for ourselves through the communion of the saints in the Lord's Supper and also in the preaching as we together worship you by faith. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know uh, how many of you were expecting a Christmas sermon. I don't know exactly that uh, you will get one this morning. Uh, that's not to say uh, that you won't get one at all. Um, I have to confess and maybe some uh, some of you can help me with this. I find the Christian calendar utterly confusing. And uh, if, if one were to preach a Christmas sermon, would he do it this Sunday or next? And I don't have an answer for that. Uh, what is Christmas Sunday? At any rate, our pulpit uh, supply next week, Will, uh, Jonathan Craig, Will, he agreed with me that next Sunday seemed better and he would be preaching one in the morning. Uh, and uh, I, I should also point out For those of you that might have been hoping for that, that there is something of a happy coincidence here, that if you look to verse 5, therefore, when he comes into the world, as a matter of fact, we have that very theme in the next text, which would be my preference anyways. Let's preach the next text. Let's go on with our exposition of books of the Bible. Our Lord came into the world as our Savior. That's the message of Scripture here. That is the message of the Gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. And what makes it good news? That he who was and is the son of God. Came into the world, the word who was in the beginning with God, who was God, who created the world by by whom all things were made. John chapter one, verses one through three came into the world. He became flesh. He became one like us. 
And as a result, to use the language of the text here, verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of his body once for all. Reference to the cross. I think we can all agree as Christian people that there is no joy or happiness apart from this. Apart from the person, Jesus Christ. And what we find in the text here is that the joy and the happiness I'm speaking of, which Christ uh, achieves and makes available to Christian people, is something that you can't find anywhere else. In fact, it's something that you cannot find even under the Old Covenant, though God himself instituted it, which is the exact point of our passage. Those who sought happiness and peace before God under the sacrifices of the Old Covenant sought in vain. Until Christ came into the world... All that man had was unsatisfying realities. Some indeed were tokens of the coming salvation, a shadow of the good things to come, he says. But none of the things that man possessed, even under the old covenant, were capable of bringing salvation, nor were they capable of bringing uh, joy and gladness to sinners. It isn't just the emptiness of the old covenant that he's describing. It's the emptiness that man felt under the old covenant. And that is why he begins by restating here that emptiness, which was both real and really felt, especially in comparison with the coming of Christ. Verse 5. The coming of Christ, he will tell us in fulfillment of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. The coming of Christ and the bringing of a new covenant. And so we find in verses 1 through 4, as we've often found, a point of comparison. He begins by stating the point of comparison, and then he states the other side of it, which is the better side, in the following verses, verses 5 through 10. There are are in these verses something of a review of the old arguments, where he states four limitations or shortcomings which were found under the old covenant, and which plainly indicate that salvation could not be found under that administration. The first thing he says in verse 1 is that the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. It's the leading assertion. But it's important when he speaks in this way, and I've even, uh, I've even encountered Christians in the past who were confused about this, as though uh, the coming of the new covenant has a way of uh, totally overturning everything you find in the old, and it just does away with the law, uh, using this verse even in support of such a notion. It's important to be clear what he means when he says the law has but a shadow of the good things to come with the obvious inference that once the good things have come, so the law disappears. Obviously, that is true. But what does he mean when he speaks of the law? Well, he's not saying I think we can be certain that Christ in his coming sets aside the law in its entirety. That all of the law must be viewed as a shadow that passes away when the reality that is Christ comes. Jesus himself is quite clear about this in what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. And he uses the language uh, similar to what we have here of coming. I did not come into the world, he says, to abrogate or abolish the law, but I came to fulfill. Actually, he says, do not think. Very emphatically, do not think that I came to abolish, but to fulfill the law. Do not associate my coming with the overturning of the law in its entirety. He didn't come to overturn it, but to fulfill it, he says. And the way he fulfills the law is evident in that sermon. He brings the law 
uh, or he brings rather uh, the full measure of the law to us by speaking of uh, the law in all of its dimensions, which includes even the inward element. And it's clear by what he is describing in that sermon, if you were to examine it carefully, that the law he is referring to is the moral law or uh, what we call simply the Ten Commandments. That is evident if you examine the contents of that sermon, especially chapter 5. He goes through a series of the commandments after saying, I didn't come to overturn but to fulfill. He then works through uh, various commandments, as I say, the sixth and then the seventh. He tells us that you murder someone when you hate him in your heart, when you call him a fool and so forth, when you when you're unwilling to be reconciled to him. He says that you commit adultery even if you lust in your heart or if you or if you uh, commit the sin of divorce and remarriage. He take or he brings to us the full measure of the law. That's the point, the full measure of the moral law. He doesn't set it aside. He maximizes it. That's what his coming represents. Uh, but I think I can say with, with a total confidence here that that is not what the book of Hebrews is interested in describing in any way. I, I do not find in the book of Hebrews a single reference to the moral law, to the Ten Commandments. And so, again, I say with confidence, that isn't his interest, that isn't what he's speaking of. What he is speaking of, as you know, is the ceremonial law, which is a different set of laws that you'll find in the, New, in the Old Testament. The laws which regulated the temple and the priesthood and so forth which even Jesus in the gospel says have no bearing on his disciples now that the new covenant has come. It was one of, the, in fact, the great scandals of the gospel. The Jews were constantly accusing Jesus not only of breaking the moral law, but also the ceremonial law. But Jesus does set aside this by his coming. His coming is the fullness of the shadow that was cast. And with his coming, so then does the shadow disappear. What he sets aside is, the law of the priesthood, the law of the tabernacle and the ceremonies, what is described in chapter 7, verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes, change, uh, there takes place a change of law also. That is, again, the law of the priesthood. The laws which regulated the Aaronic priesthood have passed. They no longer apply. Why? Because there's been a change of priesthood. There is a new priest. And it's the same argument here. What the law... The law of the priesthood, the ceremonial law showed forth was but a shadow of the good things to come. And thus it was a temporary arrangement. It demonstrated in particular by its many rituals and ceremonies and sacrifices, the need for atonement, the need for sacrifice. It establishes quite clearly, but it never actually achieved atonement. It was but a shadow of a sacrifice that would. And so let us see what it means to speak of the old covenant in this way as a shadow. The old covenant seen uh, as a method of atonement or as involving a priesthood and sacrifices. As a shadow, it is radically inferior to the reality. That has to be the great point here. That's been the point all along. In making the comparisons, the assertion is always that the new covenant and uh, the priesthood of Jesus Christ is so much better than what came before. And the point here is no different. It's a shadow of the good things to come. It isn't to be equated with them. The good things in the shadow have not yet come. And if you think of it, in speaking of, a of it as a shadow, we would never look at a shadow of someone and actually think we were looking at that person. We have in the shadow some semblance of the reality, some indication of what it is like. But we do not behold in the shadow the reality itself. 
Of course, that also means, lest we take it too far, that there is a real connection between the shadow and the reality. For the shadow, we know, is cast by the reality and has no existence but for it. And here's the point. Whatever we behold in the shadow resembles the form of what has cast it. What the Old Testament saints beheld in the shadows of the Old Covenant was Christ. Because it was Christ who cast the shadow. And they had therefore the same Christ portrayed to them in shadowy form. They had the shadow, we have the reality, but the same Christ. This is what John Calvin says. We must however observe that the things which were shown to them at a distance are the same with those which are now set before us. Hence to both the same Christ is exhibited. The same righteousness, sanctification and salvation. And the difference only is the manner of portraying or setting them forth. Well, as I say, Christ was found in both the same Christ. But we must acknowledge at least that uh, dealing with him as a shadow was indeed a limitation. The second limitation of the old covenant is stated like this, also found in verse one, that these things can never make perfect those who draw near. And something that I've stated uh, again and again, as we found these references throughout the book of Hebrews, the language of drawing near, which is what we are called to do as new covenant uh, worshipers, that the point of comparison uh, is, in fact, not the Old Testament worshiper, but the high priest in particular. It was the high priest who was commissioned to make the sacrifices and through the shed blood to then sprinkle the altar and to make his approach into the holy of holies. And so when he says that. That uh, the law being a shadow can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. He's speaking of the activity of the high priest, those Uh, Those who drew near through these sacrifices, the approach which they made, he's describing that approach or that entry into the Holy of Holies. And what he's saying is that it was imperfect and that perfection did not come to the high priest by uh, by this means. Who could really think that God's wrath was appeased by the blood of bulls and goats? That these sacrifices which he offered were capable of making Uh, Both he and those whom he represented perfect. This is a kind of self-evident truth which is later stated in verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And uh, as I say uh, in describing not only the emptiness of the old covenant. But the experience of that emptiness. Which even the high priest himself. and, And perhaps I should say the high priest more than anyone else. Experienced. It must have been evident to him as well. It must have occurred to him in a very striking and unfulfilling way that he was not made clean by these things. And that, as I say, his approach was an imperfect one. Of course, these things did not really atone for sin. Of course, the stain of sin seen as an inward blight of the soul is not removed. And so to that, it is added in the third place. Verse two, that it must have been equally evident that they were unable to claim uh, to, to, to cleanse inwardly. Verse two. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had uh, have had consciousness of sins. He's asking a question there. And the point is, they did. 
man here seen as a worshiper in his approach to God, as we know from prior sermons and prior texts that we've looked at, must deal with his own bad conscience. It's one of the many things that the Old Testament failed to remedy, but which we find Christ's remedies in his coming. Uh, And again and again, we must realize, seeing the parallel uh, between ourselves and the high priest, that the issue which is at stake in our approach to God is not just our private prayer life or our Christian walk, but preeminently, as will become increasingly clear, especially as we come to what is said in chapter 12, is worship. What he is describing is an act of worship, the act of drawing near into the holy presence of God. The question which Luther himself asked, which the high priest must have asked, and which you have to ask as well, is how can I possibly do so when my conscience is bad? And my conscience being bad, what is there that can make it clean? Is there anything that can give me a sense that I as a sinner am right now with God, and that I have any right To draw near into his presence. What I'm saying is that even the high priest was left with this dilemma. That even he in his approach to God had this awful sense that things are not right. That he and God were on bad terms. And that the blood of the bulls and goats which he sacrificed did not succeed in wiping away uh, the stain of his sin. Even his own conscience testified to this fact. He, of all people, was keenly aware of the dilemma. The consciousness of sin remained, we are told, in verse 2. That is to say, he was aware of all people that a real inward cleansing had not occurred. We know from chapter 9, verse 13, that the sacrifices did succeed in one sense in cleansing outwardly, but nothing more than that. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the, the ashes of the heifer... Uh, of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh that is outwardly how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience well how much more because the old sacrifices couldn't all they could do was cleanse outwardly as a picture of the inward cleansing but not as the reality and so I ask again as we think of the high priest and we think of ourselves who can ever worship God rightly until, until inwardly he is cleansed? And inwardly his conscience testifies to him that he is right with God. In the very repetition of these things, thinking again of the high priest, there was a constant reminder of the need for more. The constant sense that things were never really remedied. Which leads on to the final point. And that is that the point of the sacrifices, rather than Taking away sin as a real work of atonement serve instead as a reminder of sin year by year. Verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year by year. That is, as the law uh, ever called forth for more sacrifices under that administration, as it constantly did, there was always, always A sense and a reminder of sin. Sin was under this arrangement an ever-present and unresolved reality. And that was the point. The point was not to offer a remedy. It was actually to highlight the dilemma. They served as a reminder of sin year by year. Instead of having a sense that things were resolved with every repetition, there was a constant reminder of sin itself. The guilt of sin. And in particular, that these sacrifices could never take away sins. Verse uh, verse 4. 
For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Again, of course that is true. Everything about the Old Covenant covenant indicated that quite plainly. And uh, let me add, so long as the law called forth for more sacrifices, as it always did, there was a constant reminder, listen carefully, there was a constant reminder that God remembers their sin. They were reminded not only of their own sin, but that God remembers in stark contrast to the promise of chapter nine, uh, chapter eight, verse 12, rather a quotation from Jeremiah, chapter 31. I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. But you see, that was a promise of the old, of the new covenant. It wasn't something you could find in the old covenant. And so the sum total of this arrangement, as I've said, is that it represented its own inadequacy very forcefully. It was uh, something which was empty and unsatisfying. And that was the experience of the old covenant saints. Because in reality, let us see, it was never meant to satisfy. It was but a shadow, he says, of the good things to come. That's the leading assertion, chapter 10, verse 1. But in itself, it brought nothing good. Only a stronger sense of what was bad, namely sin and wrath. Every descriptor here speaks of inadequacy and imperfection. It can never, he says, make perfect. It is impossible, verse 4, to take away sins by that blood. Inadequacy and imperfection. That is the language of the Old Covenant. Whereas on the other side of the spectrum of it is impossible, that language We have the language of necessity. It was necessary in the prior passage and in many other prior passages. And just as soon as the impossibility of these sacrifices to take away sin becomes apparent to me, as indeed it must, then the necessity of Christ's blood shed for me must equally become apparent, if not more so. For apart from that blood shed and sprinkled on the offer, I am left with the inescapable dilemma of finding forgiveness by any other means. I mean the impossibility of finding forgiveness by any other means. An impossibility I cannot escape by the other false solutions offered by man. More and more as I consider the true dilemma which sin has brought about, one which is only highlighted by the Old Testament sacrifices, I see what he says here and what the high priest himself saw, namely, that it is impossible that anything could save me as offered there. Anything but the blood of Christ shed for me. Put another way, I begin to see, as I say, the other side of the spectrum of it is impossible. The necessity of that blood and to thank God for it. For I realized that I could not be saved by any other means. Indeed, if I were to try to pacify my guilty conscience by any other means... My conscience would plainly testify as here impossible. But once I look upon a bleeding savior, I find both the truth that this extreme measure, even the death of God's own son in the flesh, was alone able to meet the necessities of the case. And that now that he has shed his blood for me, the necessities have been met, which leads us to consider in the next place, verses five through ten. The coming of Christ into the world, which, as you see, is what he says. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, and he gives us a quotation of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, as the words of Christ as he comes. 
Well, here is the question, or here is a series of questions we might ask. How, given what we have considered thus far, should we view that coming? What did it represent and what did it lead to? What exactly did it remedy? And if I were to summarize the main thought of these verses, verses 5 through 10, this is what I would say. Christ, in coming into this world, according to the will of God, perfects all that was imperfect in the old. And using the language of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8 as his own, we see that this includes many things. It includes this first. His coming is set against the backdrop of the inadequacy of the old and the imperfection. An inadequacy which is stated quite plainly in these verses, not only here in Psalm 40, but also repeatedly in the prophets. Let me read it again. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. In whole burnt offering and sacrifice for sin, you have not taken pleasure. And then again, verse 8, after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. That is a sentiment, as I say, which is repeatedly stated throughout the Old Testament, especially the Psalms and the Prophets. The sentiment here being God's displeasure in those sacrifices. Not that God never wanted sacrifices and burnt offerings as found in the Old Covenant, since it was God himself who appointed and required such things specifically. But that none of them were capable of expressing his own perfect will with regard to our salvation, nor were they meant to. If you see here on the other side of it, as he says... Uh, having quoted it again in verse 8, verse 9, then he said, behold, I've come to do your will. The imperfection which is being described here is an imperfection or an inadequacy to fully express the will of God. The will of God that is with regard to our salvation. There was something we discover in these words which David uttered prophetically. That God desired and wished to see that he did not find an inadequacy which made God speak of them as though he hated them. Whenever penitent sinners sought salvation under their refuge. I am not satisfied with these, he says. I have no pleasure in them. I hate that any should regard these as a true atonement for sin. As that which is capable of satisfying my righteous wrath for sin. Rather than, as the author to the Hebrews says... As they truly were, as a shadow and as a token of the good things to come. Not the good thing itself, but as a reminder and a pointer and a sign. And so, what David is doing here in the psalm is describing the dilemma as he found it in his own day. He is describing what he knew about God as a penitent sinner. That salvation and refuge could not be found under those sacrifices because he recognized That God did not regard them as a true atonement for sin. Regarded in that way, he had no pleasure, nor any uh, any delight. Nor indeed were these sacrifices acceptable, because never accompanied with true obedience. There was always something lacking, not only in the sacrifices themselves, but in those who offered them. Oh, that one would come, David says prophetically, to do the will of God. To offer an obedience and a sacrifice which was really pleasing to God. And fully brought his will to pass. An obedient priest and a perfect sacrifice. That's what he longed for. One in which God would truly delight. 
One which would give the sinner a confidence that God was really pleased with it. And that, you see, is how we should view the coming of Christ. As answering not only to God's dissatisfaction, but the Old Covenant saints' dissatisfaction with the Old Covenant sacrifices. All that was lacking in them, in the prior priesthood, in the sacrifices, and so forth, is remedied by his coming. All that was offered under the Old Covenant, we see, did not succeed in bringing God's perfect will to pass. But Christ comes with the full recognition of this, uttering these words as he came. Whereas these things fell short of your perfection and your pleasure, my coming, O Lord, is worthy of your glory. You sent me here to do your will, and all that I offer to you, you accept. Again, when you look at verse 8 and 9, you see this. In contrast to the sacrifices in which God takes no pleasure, verse 8, Behold, I have come to do your will. Where they fall short and where they fail, I succeed. In all that he does as he comes into the world, he declares, Lo, I have come to do your will, O God. Accordingly, it was necessary in the second place, uh, and I'm, I'm, I am working off uh, the, the King James here. It was necessary that he have a body, a body that was prepared for me. You see. Along with doing of the will of God and in contrast to the sacrifices in which God does not delight. If you look in verse 5, sacrifices and offerings you do not desire, but a body you've prepared for me. There's the answer, if only we understood what it meant. Well, whatever David meant by that, it's clear enough what it meant on the lips of Jesus Christ. It's a statement of the incarnation that in coming into the world, God the Son should become a man like us. Partaking of our nature, fully sin accepted, which is, uh, as we saw, uh, the whole emphasis of the earlier chapters of the book of Hebrews. And it was necessary that he become a man like us in order to represent us. In order to be our priest. But I have to make uh, a bit of a concession here, or, or uh, I have to explain something to you. And that is there's a slight discrepancy here between what is said in Psalm 40 and what is said here. You may have noticed it. uh, And I don't want you to be in any difficulty about it. So let me describe it to you. In Psalm 40, verse 6, it actually says, my ears you have opened. But here it says, a body you've prepared for me. And that happens sometimes and you say, what is going on here? Are they just playing loosey-goosey with scripture? If that was true, that would be... Uh, catastrophic to our understanding of the of the uh, infallibility of Scripture. But the real reason we find the discrepancy is because of how translation is sometimes done. We need to recognize that whereas our English Bibles are based upon the Hebrew text, in reality, uh, the New Testament authors were very often working off of a translation of the Hebrew, which was called the Septuagint. And so uh, the, the author here in his quotation of the Old Testament is not working directly out of the Hebrew. He's actually working out of the Greek. He is quoting the Septuagint, again, the Greek translation. And translation is sometimes like this. You read one translation, you read another. We know this just from our various English translations. Uh, uh, various uh, meanings are represented in the different translations. And that's all that we have here. As our English translators uh, have it, my ears you've opened. But as, uh, as the, the Greek uh, as the Greek translators had it, based on the same text, a body you've prepared for me. 
It's not different words, it's a different translation. But since the words were capable of this rendering, or both renderings, there really is no difficulty. Again, this is something that you find from time to time in the New Testament. But we should remember the way translations work, and that translations are capable of rendering different uh, of different forms of words or different phrases. And at any rate, as Calvin reminds us, when he deals with this apparent difficulty, uh, he says it's impossible to open our ears unless one has a body. And so the truth uh, is there even uh, if only implied. But the point is, which he wishes us to see here in his quotation of Psalm 40, again, as the words of Christ as he comes into the world, is that the Son, in executing the will of the Father, answering to the inadequacies of the Old Covenant, covenant and coming to do his will has to have a body it was the will of God that he have a body which is what David says prophetically just as he expresses his own sense of God's dissatisfaction with the sacrifices of the old covenant sacrifice and offering you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me Uh, see it there in contrast and yet it remains true without offering there is no atonement chapter 9 verse 22 without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness God is not expressing there nor is David his displeasure in sacrifices in general he is expressing his displeasure in those sacrifices and in particular as I said that any should seek refuge in them as saving And God's displeasure did did nothing uh, to negate the reality of the principle, again, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Rather, his displeasure in those sacrifices was based on that very principle, that in them there was no true atonement, that he did not find in that blood forgiveness of sins, chapter 10, verse 4. But it was never the will of the Father that there be no atonement and thus no offering. Only that there be a real atonement through a worthy sacrifice. That is what he expressed when he said, A body thou hast prepared for me. Seen in direct contrast to his displeasure and disapproval of the old sacrifices. Against the backdrop of God's displeasure in these things, Christ says, A body thou hast prepared for me. That is, a body in which to offer. A body which is capable of expressing your perfect will. And a sacrifice which does indeed atone for sin. A blood in which there is true remission. A sacrifice, in other words, and a body in which God is well pleased. But lastly, we must consider what he achieves in his body. And what he achieves plainly is the will of God. He goes forth, we read, uh, let's see, in verse 7. Then I said, behold, I've come in the scroll of the book is written of me. He goes forth into this world just as it was written of him, just as scripture had declared he would. In exactly the way God said he would remedy the situation. Whatever was lacking in these old sacrifices, God would remedy when he came and assumed a body for us. He does so as we've seen again and again and as stated here in verse 10 by offering himself By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So also chapter 9 verse 26. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages 
He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Whatever the old old covenant failed to achieve, he achieved by the one sacrifice of himself on the cross, namely the will of God, the will of God and the pleasure of God. Listen again to verse 10. By this will, that is by the will of God, he came to do. Verse 9, behold, I've come to do your will. Verse 10, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It is only by the will of God, beloved, that Jesus did anything at all. And so we see, in contrast to the old covenant, that in his death he is able to make perfect those who draw near. And he is able to cleanse the consciences of those who do so. Erasing the consciousness of sin. Giving them a sense that sin is pardoned. There is in his death a virtue and a power that takes away sins. Again, a reality and a substance which we are able to experience. And which gives us confidence to truly worship God. But only because God has willed it. Only because God is well pleased and satisfied in what he offers. And because his coming was in fulfillment of that will. So he comes into this world and sets his face toward the cross with the total confidence that he does so according to the will of God. Read the Gospel of John and that's what you'll see. Jesus is constantly saying, I came to do the will of the Father. And there is my warrant for doing it. And there is your warrant for believing it. And so as he does so, as he goes to the cross, he's able to boldly declare in summary here, Lo, I have come to do thy will. In perfect confidence that he comes and he offers at God's command. Offering both what God's justice requires as well as what his mercy desires. And that is an atonement. Or an offering rather which really atones for sin. And that in offering his confidence is this. That the father will now say answering to David's former words. David having said you were not satisfied in these things. Now Christ offers with the full confidence that the father will say. I have desired and I do take pleasure in this sacrifice. It is to me a source of constant pleasure and eternal delight. All that was lacking in the old. Even that which was detestable to me. I have set aside and now in this priest. And this sacrifice all that I am and wish to be comes to perfect expression. As Hugh Martin says. Of this verse, or these verses, verses, uh, verses, uh, five through ten. That was the full, complete will of God which Jesus came to do. To offer himself, and by offering of himself, to sanctify or consecrate and render acceptable unto God those whom the Father had given him. Let me read how Jesus puts it in John chapter six. But as I say, you could read the whole Gospel of John and you get this sense constantly. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life, that I myself will raise him up on the last day. How will the father reject what I offer to him, Jesus says, when all that I offer he commanded me to do. Equally, uh, to turn the argument around a little bit. Answering to the dissatisfaction which David utters here. We are able to say along with Christ. Here is a sacrifice and an offering you have desired. Here is a burnt offering and a sacrifice for sin. In which you have taken pleasure. This is salvation indeed beloved. It is again to use the language of the text here. 
to be sanctified and cleansed once for all by the blood of Jesus. And indeed, so great, so complete is the Father, Father's acceptance of this offering. So fully does he bring the Father's will to pass in his coming. So great is the Father's pleasure and delight in what he offers. And he who offers. That we are now able to say, unlike the saints and the priests of the old covenant. There is now no reminder of sin. There is no remembrance of sin. It has been put away, blotted out of the memory of God himself. We have been made clean by his blood. You see, I I don't think you fully grasp uh, how much better we have it until we're able to contrast ourselves with them. They had in the continual sacrifices a constant reminder. We have in the continual approach to the table a constant reminder not of sin, but that sin has been put away. Sin has been finished. Do you see the difference? It makes all the difference in the world. It changes radically our worship, our life, our faith. It gives us confidence now to deal with God. It it cleanses our conscience. We see the fulfillment by his death of the words. Uh, Jeremiah 31 quoted in chapter 8 verse 12. I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And with that confidence... That what the old sacrifices could not do, his blood can, namely, make perfect those who draw near. We go to God full of faith and boldness. That is what describes the worship of the new covenant. That is what Jesus Christ has achieved for us, which could never be found in any other way. Let us show daily that we know it by our continual approach to the throne of grace. Amen. And I would ask uh, the elders to join me now at the table. As I keep saying, the book of Hebrews just ties into the Lord's Supper so nicely. Uh, It wasn't so easy when we preached or when we looked at Romans 13 and perhaps when we uh, begin Romans next, which is my plan. It won't be quite so easy, but Hebrews just ties right into the Lord's Supper. And it's difficult to have the Lord's Supper before me and not just allude to it somehow, even if I didn't intend to. And that typically is what happens. So uh, in a way, I've already I've already spoken the words which I needed to say, and that is, uh, well, let me read the words of institution and then I'll, I'll continue. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now that phrase, as often as you do this, you proclaim his death until he comes, again, is set in radical contrast. As Jesus himself speaks of it as the blood of the new covenant to what uh, the old covenant believer experienced, which again was an unsatisfying reality. It made him long for something better, which it was meant to. A better sacrifice, a better blood, a better sprinkling, a better priest, and so on. A better covenant. But we have all of that. And again, let me just state, in contrast to their yearly and even daily reminders of sin, that's the exact language of the phrase, not forgiveness. They were reminded of sin, that sin was 
as I said in the sermon, an ever-present and unresolved reality, always. We have the exact opposite experience. By the one sacrifice of himself, he put away sin once for all. And the thing that we're constantly being reminded of is not sin, but that sin has been put away. And isn't that the thing we need to be reminded of? Don't we need to see that sin has been put away? Because the truth is, our consciences have been cleansed, but they keep getting dirty again, don't they? Because we keep sinning. And so we need, uh, we need to deal with the blood. We need uh, to deal with the cleansing again and again. We need to be brought in constant contact with our priest and to remember what his ministry consists of, what our salvation consists of. It doesn't consist of a perfect life. It consists of forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Here is your reminder, beloved. It is your weekly reminder. Aren't you glad that we're doing it more frequently? I know that I am. Uh, Though it is, again, according to the world and your more fleshly nature, it is outwardly contemptible. Uh, It's amazing in the eyes of the world that I would say, here is salvation. Here is your salvation. And yet to us, it really is. The spiritual man discerns all things, even uh, Christ himself in the body or, or excuse me, the bread and the wine. Uh, And so really the only question is, do you have this faith? Not are you worthy to come? I remember, we're seeking not our own perfection, but his. And so the question about worthiness, are you worthy to come, as Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians 11, doesn't have to do with your own life so much as it has to do with your faith. Do you have faith in the Son of God as your Savior? If you do, then he's offered to you here. Uh, Again, not as a sacrifice for sin. That's the error of Roman Catholicism, to which we stand in constant protest as Protestants. But it's a constant reminder that sin has been put away by the once for all sacrifice of himself. Uh, That is that is uh, the the sum of the Christian's faith in essence. But on the other side, an unworthy approach would be to say, what a contemptible little cup that is. Do you really expect me to believe that God will bless me through that? Now, that would be to come in an unworthy manner. But to have faith is to say, yes, indeed. The body and blood of Christ shed for me. With those words, let us uh, let us approach the table. Father in heaven, we thank you for the priesthood of our Savior. We thank you that forgiveness is offered in His body and blood. Uh, though though our bodies are washed, our feet are dirty, and we need a little bit of cleansing each day, and especially on the Sabbath. And so we ask you, God, through this means not only through the preaching that you would preach to us, but that you would also preach to us in the sacrament and strongly assure us that indeed because his blood has been shed, so I am forgiven and I am saved and nothing can ever cause God to hold my sin against me again. Give us such faith, give us such assurance, O Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples as I ministering uh, in his name. Give this bread to you.
Our Lord Jesus said, take eat, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup and having given thanks as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name, give this cup to you.
Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. And as we close out our worship, let us stand together and sing in 133. blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.